You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is a comedian of absolutely indomitable talent recorded live at the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh. This is Susan Kalman. I thought I'd do a formal... <laughs> now, I was in to see a show earlier on in here called Murder, Marple and Me. Now, I'm very aware of the fact that I am very short. So, hi. Because uh, <laughs> I know if you're sitting down, you really... Ca- Just imagine it's a radio show, I think, is the easiest thing. And it's there's a couple of ladies at the back when you said this isn't a comedy show, they went, oh, fuck, and took yeah. another drink. So, <laughs> hi, ladies. <laughs> I'm standing beside them. Would you? I is Susan visible seated? Was oh, that yeah, a vague response? It's a there, vague response. It? So there's a couple of ways we can do this. Uh, if someone has a cushion, uh, we could do that, uh, or we could both stand. Can I stand or, for an hour? Let's try it. Let's try right, it. Let's, let's try it. Let's do it standing. Just for, I feel bad for people who've come all the way and then gone, do you know what, I like that podcast, but I couldn't see a bloody thing of the yeah. lady. <laughs> Some of you don't even know what I look like in the first place, so hi. So, this is... Some uh, disappointed. <laughs> Let's sit back down again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she sounds nicer on Radio 4. So, Susan, you have finished your run now. You've finished your Edinburgh run for this year. I am. Which might explain why you're looking perky and happy and refreshed. Yes, I'm not crying in a skip. Wonderful. So uh, how did it go? How was the show this year? Fine. Time? I did 12 nights at the stand. Uh, I did 12 nights of a work-in-progress show, clearly labelled as such, and cheaper tickets at the stand comedy club to try out some new stuff. Because I think once you arrive at the Fringe, you really... And I, I don't agree with it, because mm-hmm. I think the Fringe used to be... You had preview dates and you could work things in. But these days, you need to be bang on form as soon as you arrive at the Fringe. Okay. Uh, and if you, do, if you don't have that clear concept... It can do as much damage as not coming to the fringe. Sure. Okay. So you 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 expressly put this as a work in progress. So that was the title of the show. Always yes. a work in progress. Always a work in progress. And w- was that a, with a view to bringing that show back to Edinburgh next year when not it's finished? Not that show, because then again the audience will get annoyed because they've already seen that show. <laughs> But there are elements of it that I'll possibly use in it. And for the first time ever, I played the guitar and sang okay. as, a, as a wee just diversion for everybody. Okay. Now, I, I had to... I think people get bored sometimes when you just yeah. talk. <laughs> Here's a wee don't, song don't, don't mention talking being boring. That's, oh, no, it's not, uh, uh, not huge name. It's lovely. So, yeah, I was trying stuff out, and I was trying out, I think, as a stand-up, you develop 
in your skills, my audience has changed as what I do is changing and I'm finding the right thing for me and for them. If okay. they'd come to see my shows in 2007, 2008, they would have been horrified and walked out, I suspect. So I sure. have to change what I do as well to suit the why, audience. Why do you say that? Why do you say they'd have been horrified and walked out? Because um, it, I was doing the wrong type of comedy for me. Uh, I, I like a bit of filth, but I'm actually quite embarrassed by filth. I'm the kind of person that if I'm watching TV with my mum and dad and there's a bit saucy comes on, I go, I don't want a cup of tea. Okay. I don't, I don't really like it, but I think you have this idea that you have, to, you have to play up a bit of the filth. Not the language. I enjoy swearing immensely, and I do have to, I have to rein that in a little bit because I really do swear mm-hmm. a lot in real, like a lot mm-hmm. in real life. And I have to stop myself from swearing so much but what I was doing I think wasn't right for me it was clearly not what I wanted to do Uh, at the time I was told you need to do a show where you come out and you do a wee bit banter with the audience and then you've got 10 minutes that you can put on Michael McIntyre or live Mm. at the Apollo so that when the TV people come and see you they can put you on these shows When, when you say you were told who was telling you was that something you picked up from seeing other people's shows or from the word on the comedy circuit or from management someone who was representing me at the time and it was with the best intentions because that was seen as the way to get on in comedy at the time so it wasn't malicious or anything like Mm -hmm. that but I I realised 2010 I did a show that I hated with a passion and the audience were not that keen either Okay, what was that? What was that show about, and why did you hate it? How did the you end up in that The show was about uh, it was just basically trying to do exactly what what I'd been told to do, which was have ten minutes slices mm. of material, because that was the way you did it. Instead of having a meandering hour of something reaching a conclusion, which is what sure. I like to do, I like to have a conclusion, but I don't like to have a lot of jokes. <laughs> but you know, you say that, but you are you are more than capable of writing very punchy short yep. jokes about very interesting and diverse subjects. Yes. So why? What? Let's pin this Can down. You why my did you? Can you tell her that? Because yeah. she's not convinced. <laughs> we'll send her the tape of this. Yeah. Um, so why? Why? Why would you end up hating it then? I just want to pin that down a little bit more because okay. that experience, and I think a lot of comics have been in it, of gradually realising that you hate the thing you've been working a year on and that you're contractually obliged to now keep doing. There's no time to write a new show once you're in the thick of the festival. Mm-hmm. You're not alone in having that experience. Mm-hmm. But why were you... Okay, so what, one of the reasons, obviously, you said was because it didn't have the kind of meandering storyline that you mm-hmm. liked but, and, and because you felt pressured to do a particular sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But one would assume, I would assume, that your 10-minute cleans or dirty sec- sections of material would be perfectly strong material. The fisting stuff, I still think... <laughs> were, no. they, were they working uh, in the club or were they not working in, in, no. in the actual... Well, the, the, issue, the issue really was, one of, I like speaking to an audience and when I do stand-up, I move around a lot. As you can see just now, I'm having great difficulty staying in the one place. For the benefit I, of the uh, listener, uh, yes, Susan yes. is sort I'm of rocking slightly... back and forward. <laughs> when I recorded my Radio 4 show, I'll just show the audience, it was really disconcerting. I had to stay in the one place because that was the way I was instructed. Okay. So recorded the Radio 4 series and I do this I was recording it like that <laughs> because I can't stay still and people in the uh, audience Susan were looks going, like a uh, sumo wrestler preparing yeah. to charge uh, I <laughs> yes but in terms of gesture <laughs> yes thanks very much sweetie uh, I uh, 
Uh, so I had said, right, I'm going to do a show where I stand behind a microphone and I do a show and I don't speak to the audience and I just stand there and I do the jokes and there you go. And it was a disaster. Because mm-hmm. actually what I like to have is a little bit of freedom to say hello to people. I don't talk to them necessarily. I don't compare necessarily. But I like the freedom to be able to engage with the audience and change things a little bit if they're liking stuff or not mm-hmm. liking stuff. And it just didn't work for me. So and you felt like the structure was imprisoning you yes, in having to do the same script absolutely. every night. Absolutely. And the fact that I was told you have to do the same thing every night in case reviewers come in in case judges the worst thing to happen to comedy ever is the bloody Foster's Comedy Award because mm-hmm. it imprisons comedians God there's probably judges in hard luck uh, <laughs> it just it, it creates a whole death knell over the creativity of shows mm-hmm. I think because people are so paranoid about doing the same show every single night that they'd lose a little bit of that creative spark, I think, sometimes, sure. about sure. letting loose when an audience don't like something. They go, well, I could just do this instead. Do you, do you fall victim to that yourself, or have you in the past, yes. where you've thought, I want, to, I want to win, that it would really make a difference if I got nominated, it would really make a difference if I won, mm-hmm. and you let that, consciously or unconsciously, guide your creative process over the course of a year? Yes, absolutely. There's no question, and I think, without playing the regional card, I think being Scottish and not living in London, and this being my only real opportunity for people from the industry to see me, mm-hmm. that there's no doubt that winning an award like that or being nominated would immediately... Uh, raise my profile in a way that I can't do otherwise. So there's no question it would be a positive thing to happen. So of course you want it to happen. And then you get all disgruntled. And then you get all grumpy. And then you graffiti people's posters. No, (laughs) No, it's a good thing. And I think the thing is, though, that the politics, when you learn about the politics of it, you become slightly disillusioned. Okay. About the and process. What do, you, what do you mean by that? What sort of politics are you talking about? Well, I think I'm sometimes. I'm not asking you to incriminate yourself. No, in no, the no, eyes absolutely of the not. I think sometimes when you realise a particular. I think sometimes it's not always. You know, it's openly been said that uh, an act which has won it should have won it for the show the previous year but didn't. And so the next year they thought we better. Which, so the show that they won it for wasn't as good as the show the year before. Sure. And for various political reasons, uh, they didn't. I mean, I think it's... I don't... I'm not saying there's any subterfuge or any bribery that's involved in it, but I think it's it's an extra weight when you already have reviewers mm. and you already have those pressures involved in it that you've then got judges. Okay, I was long-listed my first year. Mm-hmm. It was in the stand for 2007, long-listed, which means all the judges come and see you again. I was in the stand for 40-seater, The only people at that show were the 20 Foster's judges. Oh, my God. I was not shortlisted that year because I I bottled it. I bottled it. What do you mean by that? Well, you walk into a room and there's 20 people with Foster's Comedy Award things around their neck. They were wearing the lanyards in the show. Wearing the lanyards in the show. And you go... And I, I... It was awful. Okay, so when you say you bottled it, you mean that you fell apart because of nerves. Yeah, you, you, I, don't, you didn't change yeah. what you do to suit... Yeah. No, no, no. Okay. no. There's no one to blame for my own failure apart from myself, Stuart. Sure. I completely blame myself for my lack of progression and, in the and comedy I, circuit. I think, I think the, the, the important word there is failure, because yeah. you are by no means a failure. Yeah. And yet the concept that having the stricture of the judges and the fact that there's a competition, the fact it's turned into a competition, yeah. means that if you don't win, you feel like you failed, which is insane. Fail. You failed, Susan. And I do, I sit at home, my, my wife's in the audience, right, and she's, cu- she's used to me sitting on my bed going, you're awful, Susan. You're terrible, Susan. Mm. Just give up. You're a shithead. Mm. That's, why I do, that's what you mm. do. And then you go out on stage and go, <laughs> whoa, cats. And, uh, <laughs> you know, 
But no one needs to see that bit where you're at home crying and drinking. Well, you are someone who has taken those aspects of your life, your struggle with depression, you've taken that onto the stage and you've put that in your radio show. Yes. Um, I confess to you beforehand that I haven't been able to see any of your Edinburgh hours, but I'm familiar with your radio. Hasn't been able to. Yeah, we've we've always clashed. Didn't want to. (laughs) Your decision, audience. I wouldn't dream of asking you how many of my hours you've seen. Do you live in London? Uh, Yes, I I do. I was at the Soho Theatre for two weeks. Did that clash? I was gigging every night. (laughs) I'm a comedian. I work in the (laughs) evening. Yeah. So, um, but you have taken that that issue with your depression. You have taken your struggle with depression onto the stage. Now, I know it was in in an episode of Susan Kalman is Convicted, your recent Radio 4 series. Was that material stuff that you'd taken from or adapted from previous shows? Or was that you coming out as a a depressed person? (laughs) Yes. Uh, what happened You're laughing there because when, we inter- when I interviewed you and Mark Thomas the other yeah. week, you said you came out as a lesbo and I said you later came out as a depresbo. Yeah, we, all, yes. we, all, we all congratulated ourselves. That wasn't yeah, being that was recorded good. and I couldn't let that yeah. go to waste. Everyone, so. <laughs> everyone had a drink after that. Yeah. that was, uh, <laughs> so this is what happened. This is the interesting thing. Radio 4 to me is a wonderful and beautiful thing and I've been struggling for years to get on to Radio 4 in my own show. And I've been turned down many times. And again, I, I don't, it's not a problem because what I submitted wasn't good enough. And sometimes you just have to say, actually, what I submitted wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Now, last year I did the show about equal marriage, which I, I thought was a, an okay, pretty mm-hmm. good show. That's, <laughs> as, that's as much as you'll get from me. It was an all right show. That's, what, what the recording won't pick up is two individual hecklers shouting it was brilliant. Right. So thank you for that. It was a good show. And uh, Caroline Raphael came to the show and uh, so did Alison Vernon-Smith and Lindsay Fenner, two and producers. And these people are? Radio 4 yeah. producers. And they said, right, we need to turn that into a Radio 4 show because it's an important show to broadcast. Mm-hmm. And they said, have you got any other ideas? And I said, yes. I always say yes. <laughs> and I said, that's the key. Just always say yes. Always say you've got an idea and then make it up. Monkey tennis. It really is monkey yeah, tennis. Yeah, yeah. Really is. Uh, oh, you want a sitcom about a family? Sure, I've got one about a family. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was commissioned out with the commissioning rounds and I said right why don't I do four shows on things that I feel very strongly about and uh, so death penalty because I'd worked on death row depression was one I really wanted to do and then the last one is about being Scottish and I wrote them because we didn't have a lot of time in two weeks so I, when I was doing the Soho Theatre mm-hmm. I had a bed set possibly the most depressing place I've ever stayed it felt like I'd been thrown out of my own house and I was in a bed sitting in Soho and I got up every morning at seven o'clock in the morning and I wrote all four episodes in two weeks. So none of that in the other three episodes I'd ever used before. Okay. So I wrote three Edinburgh shows in two weeks. Okay. So let's talk about the... <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is a perfectly reasonable pause. I'm amazed it took you that long to catch on, everyone. Yeah. Um, but let's talk specifically about, about the depression one. Something that fans of the show will know is that I suffer very badly from anxiety. And I, in the past, have tried to turn that into a show. I did a show in 2011 called Another Lovely Crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the heart of that show was, the, was a story about, a true story about a time I'd been in a camping shop and didn't know whether or not to buy a camping mallet. And it had sent me into an absolute vortex of anxiety and I'd run out of the shop crying. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't manage to make that very funny, as you can tell. <laughs> This, this show was partially successful, but I yeah. found there are numerous issues with trying to write about your own problems. One of which is that when you're writing comedy, sometimes if you do sit down and write it, if you're a notepad or a, a laptop person, you're sitting down and writing about your own flaws, your own failings, and that would, like as not, send me into a sort of vortex tailspin of introspection. Yep. 
Are you familiar with that? How was it? How was it to write about your depression? It was fine because I, I had a purpose there and I wanted to make sure that show said, if you have depression, it's okay. Right. That was the main okay. thing. Okay. I wanted to make sure by the end of it, everyone realized that this was something which whilst I struggle with it, it's absolutely grand. And the fact that I'm a comedian makes it is actually the best profession and the worst profession for me because it's full of hideous people talking about you, yet you can come on stage and talk about things. Mm. And so the, po- the point of it was to say... And be quite honest about the fact I have been to counselling, I have been to therapy, I have done all of these things and describe my depression as uh, it's the crab of hate. I talk about it, it goes up my back and, and clamps onto my ears and tells me I'm awful. And at the end of it I say I bought it a top hat and a bow tie. Mm-hmm. So it's still there, I'm never going to get rid of it, but it's still there. And things like measuring, I wanted to make it, if you don't have depression, you don't know what it is, you think you're just a bit sad, that's not depression. Depression is the unbelievable feeling of not being able to function in humanity and crying a lot. Mm. And so I said things like, I measure my depression in terms of box sets. Mm -hmm. So if it's West Wing, it's really bad, Mm -hmm. because that's seven series. Mm -hmm. If it's not so bad, it's Jonathan Creek. That's only about four. Okay. How, how How long did it take you? How did you approach? Obviously, you wrote that episode very quickly, but how... What was the strategy in in the approach there? Because what you've done there, very sort of deftly, is to take something that everyone can relate to and connect it with your depression, which perhaps not everyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you said um, is that uh, you know, some people are glass half full, some people are glass half empty. I feel that I don't deserve a glass. And when you said that on the radio show, the live audience reaction was like they've been punched in the stomach because they love you, you're twinkling, you're being successful and happy. And that line, they got it and they all went, oh. And -hmm. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Mm Mm-hmm. In creating that, did you try that material out anywhere, or was never it, tried it out either? It, that was the first time you yeah, said any of I'm that stuff. Yeah, I'm a fanny. Okay. It, turns out, <laughs> it turns out other people, when they do Radio Four shows, try things out. I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought you just turned up and read it out. Okay. You know, I didn't know. I didn't, my okay. entire comedy career is about not knowing exactly what other people are doing, okay. and I just go. So no, I'd never even read it out loud really until that night. Mm-hmm. So when, so when it got that reaction, did you think, holy shit, they're not going to go with this? Well, we did a double header that night of depression and the death penalty. <laughs> and I had to say to the audience at the start, right, it's all right, we'll be okay. And actually the start of the, the, start of the I think, did we do death penalty first? Because we thought that would be easier than depression. Uh, sure. I think we did Absolutely. the death penalty well, first. Well, that's external, isn't it? Rather yeah, than and then we did the depression one. And even at the start of the death penalty one, I remember I said something and the audience went, oh. (laughs) They just weren't sure. No, it is. I don't know how people perceive me. And I think sometimes the warm, people do feel warm towards me and I don't realise it. So when I stand on stage and say, uh, I I don't like myself, they go, oh, you wee sausage. Yeah. And I don't, and it was amazing. And of all the things I've ever done, that Radio 4 season, undoubtedly the best thing I've ever done and has had the best reaction from people in terms, especially the depression episode. I've had many, many messages and still continue to get messages from people Mm. who listen to that when they can't get out of bed. And that's an amazing thing to have made a connection with people in that way. Were there, were there jokes or, or kind of angles that you wrote for that show that you decided not to include? Yes. And what were they? The really what, honest, what sorts of the really honest, not funny bits. Okay. It still has to be funny. That's the thing. Even the equal marriage show, it, it still has to be funny or it's a lecture. 
Sure. Do you know what I mean? If I, because I got some criticism from the Equal Marriage Show about how I should have included more about the arguments uh, in relation to <laughs> equal marriage. I uh, didn't know you could do that voice. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I can. That's, that's my generic Radio 4 voice. Uh, I got a lot of, uh, oh, Susan, you should really have talked more about the religious aspect of. Uh, and uh, the point is, it's a comedy show. It's a comedy show. Now, if I'd gone on for, as I qu- could quite happily talk for an hour about the religious aspects of the, you know, the Catholic Church, that's not going to be funny. Mm-hmm. That's an angry lesbian shouting. <laughs> you know? And so you've got to balance it. And talking about depression, and if I really talked about how bad it is sometimes, that would just have an audience going, I feel very uncomfortable with this. Okay. You know, so you don't want to make people uncomfortable. That's, the, I think, the balance in comedy. If you're talking about truthful issues, to talk about them, but not make anyone feel uncomfortable about listening. Okay. It's like, you, you know when you overhear a really explicit conversation between two women talking about their sex life or something? And that you go, never happens <laughs> to me, but yeah. <laughs> I, can, like I can imagine it. Yeah. yeah. And you're like that, oh. You never want to make the audience feel uncomfortable about listening to what you're saying. Okay. Does that, does that mean that you sacrifice some element or, or some extent of the self-expression involved? Because you actually want to be talking about that stuff mm. and yet you're pulling back from that place. I mean, yeah. it's, it's an unusual situation because obviously you're, you're writing it and it's going immediately from page to public broadcast. Yeah. Um, have you taken on any of that material and done it? On stages or in clubs or in shows? No, since I've then? never, I've never done it. I've not done it since. I've not. Uh, I might in the future. I think next year I might. I'm planning the show for next year, sure. and there's a possibility I might. But I think radio is such a beautiful medium in terms of you have to think. There was an, an audience, but you have to think about someone lying in their bed at eleven o'clock at night listening to it, hmm. and it's a very, very intense, close, personal connection that you get with somebody. And you have to think about that intensity over 26 minutes, mm. you know. And I also think doing a club at the week, if I did the Glasgow stand and went, hi, everyone, I've got depression, they'd be like, get the fuck off. Do you think it's possible, though? Do you think it's possible for anyone to talk about depression on a Friday night in a club? It, listen, it is, but only if you then make fun of it. Okay. I think I think a switcheroo on a Friday night when you talk about anything, you've got to have a big punchline. And I don't think that I don't think that something like depression deserves a big punchline. I think depression deserves being considered and personal experiences being related. Sure. I can't tell you in a sentence what my depression's like, so why how could I tell a joke in a sentence sure. about what it's like? So does that mean with a view to your show next year, which will be a, an Edinburgh hour long show or a yeah. tour show that's not based on, on club stuff? Yep. Will are you interested? Do you desire to push further into exploring that idea of depression or do you feel that you'll only go so far as they're still comfortable? Uh, I think, you again, it's as comfortable as they're and as comfortable as I am. Okay. I, I genuinely want people to still think that I'm a, a capable human being of standing on stage. I, I don't want anyone to think she's... If I don't laugh, she's going to kill herself. <laughs> you know, there's there's very there's got to be a line there where you, you kind of are still the person on stage where you feel comfortable that I'm going to make you sure. laugh. Like, you can admit now here in front of an audience and, and broadcast on the podcast, you can admit that you do go home and cry to your wife about, you know, hating yourself and having those experiences of self-loathing. Yes, Absolutely. But you can do that. So what's the line there? Because you can do that now and admit it. And I know this isn't a gig. Yeah. But it this sort of feels like a bit like the last counselling session I had. To be <laughs> <laughs> I was paying her 85 quid an hour as well. <laughs> wow. Well, this free, time they're paying. So, free uh, <laughs> therapy. This is brilliant. Yes. 
So what? So I'm asking, what's the... If you're happy to keep... I feel the, like you're going to talk about my mum in a minute. <laughs> sh- quiet back there. You've given the game away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So but what is what is the... Is this gin? Hey, hey, we can get you some. Um, what is... What is the what is the dynamic there? If you're happy to just keep pursuing that for a second, <laughs> if you are, I don't know because that you've got a marvelously twinkly eyes, but all, they've also got quite a sort of potentially violent sort of <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah, come on, let's keep going. Come on. Okay, so so those so you're happy to admit you're happy to admit to these people in a sort of quasi gig situation that you are. I mean, I, I as am I. You know, I I frequently for my partner, I'm an absolute nightmare. I'm a bundle of nerves. I think some comedians are. I don't think that that tears of a clown thing is true. That all comedians not all of suffer them. from mental no. disorders. But Most I think of them. yeah, maybe. <laughs> I did. There was a wee girl came backstage, went to the stand. Uh, she just started gigging, and I was sitting with a couple of other comics, and she went, "I'm just really terrified. You know, I, I suffer terribly from depression. And I'm just worried I'm going to stand out in the comedy." Scene and I was like, darling, take a fucking ticket. <laughs> if you think that's going to make you different to the rest of us, darling, welcome to Self Farmer's Corner, really. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It's like that most of us have something wrong. Okay, you've got to have something wrong to do this as a job. Why do you think that? I agree with you, but why do you think that? In all seriousness, well, why do you think that? Okay, here's the serious. Okay, so uh, I've been with my wife for 10 years. She's a very nice woman, indeed, and she loves me, I believe. And uh, she said to me once, she genuinely asked me the question when she, because I met her when I was a lawyer. Three years later, I gave up my job to be a comedian. And uh, a bit after that, she said, why do you do it? Am I not enough for you? And the answer is no. The answer is it's not. That is not enough for my slightly odd soul with a bit missing. I need to have the kind of um, audience interaction in order to feel good about myself. And it's wrong and it's horrific. And it's why I suffer from depression. Because if you need the affirmation of a group of strangers on a Friday night to tell you you're an okay person, there's something seriously wrong with you. But I think that's what it is. Doesn't matter if we're loved. Doesn't matter if we have a relationship. We still need... I need you people to love me. This episode is just an absolute blinder. Susan is bearing her soul... Uh, with her own unique brand of anger and softness. I think that's that's what makes Susan really special, is the combination of those two qualities. Uh, you'll have heard her, I'm sure, on Radio 4 or seen her at the Edinburgh Fringe. And if you haven't, then do seek out her stuff live or on YouTube, because she's obviously completely worth it. And speaking of YouTube, if you'd like to see some edited highlights of this interview, you can do that at the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash comcompod. Apparently I've been saying backslash whenever I mean forward slash, so sorry about that. Thank you very much to a listener who alerted me. Um, I'm in New Zealand at the moment, so if you're listening in or near Christchurch, then come and see me at the World Buskers Festival in Christchurch. Have a Google of that for details. Uh, whenever I say have a Google of that, it basically means I, I can't remember the uh, email, the website, uh, the homepage, and uh, hey, come on, man, what is it? how long does it take to Google something? Uh, and if you're, uh, if you're back in the UK and you're near London, then me and Alexis Dubas, he of Marcel Lecomte fame, uh, are doing a doubleheader preview on Tuesday the 11th of February at the Prince of Wales in Brixton. So I'm just zipping off to New Zealand for a depressingly short amount of time, but nonetheless very excited about it. Uh, Again, I've got no idea how you get tickets for that, um, but I'd be staggered if Tuesday the 11th in Brixton at the Prince of Wales in, like, February, I'd be staggered if that sold out. A Tuesday in February. It's never going to happen. So just turn up for that. (laughs) Um, 
yes, I, I had a little daydream there where thousands of people turned up and couldn't get in. <laughs> Just a little flash of that. Simply not going to happen. Do come along. While I'm plugging things, talking of February, all of these com compadres are on at the Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival in February. So if you're anywhere near Leicester, you can see previous ComCom guests, Rob Deering, Ben Norris, Sarah Pascoe, Rob Rouse, Carl Donnelly, Tom Bins, Jarleth Reagan, Richard Herring, Marcel Lucant slash Alexis Dubas, Hal Cruttenden, Phil Nickel and Liam Malone. Uh, all of those details are at comedy-festival.co.uk. So if you've listened to people, if you listen to those people in the past and you're thinking, I want to get to see them, but I'm in the Midlands, I'm nowhere near London, Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival is your best bet. And you can also come along on Sunday, the 16th of February, and you can see me interview Jared Christmas for this show live at Firebug in Leicester at 5.30pm. That's Sunday, the 16th of Feb. Uh, and you can come and see my new hour in its most embryonic state later that night at Handsome Hall at 8 o'clock. Tickets for the interview are from comedy-festival.co.uk and for tickets to my preview, you can pay what you want on the door or secure a ticket in advance from www.pay-what-you-want.info It's easy to remember, isn't it? www.pay-what-you-want.info and finally, thanks again for all your donations to the show. Because of your generosity, I've not only been able to chip away at some of the Edinburgh debt, uh, but I've also been able to surprise my graphics guy, Rob, and also my musician, Dan Melrose, who created and played all the guitar stings that uh, most of you love and <laughs> some of you hate. I know, but I love them. Um, but both of those had contributed their work for free, and now I've been able to pay them thanks to you. I really appreciate that. They really appreciate that as well. Feel free to donate at comedianscomedian.com with the PayPal button. Now, let's get back to the simply brilliant Susan Kalman. Do you ever worry, as I do, that if you are healed of your depression, then you will quit being a comedian because you won't be driven so much to seek that affirmation? Uh, no, because I'm never going to be cured of it. I've had it for I've had it since I can remember. Two things I've known since I was about five: I'm a big laser and I'm a depressed laser. <laughs> I've always known it. I've been depressed. I, I can't remember a time when I wo- when I didn't feel like this. I can't remember a time when I didn't find women attractive. It's two things I've lived with for. 35 years, I don't think that's going anywhere. It does seem from the way you put those two things together that you've kind of co-opted your depression as being an inherent part of you. Yes. Like your, like your sexuality. Yeah. Instead of, as a therapist would presumably tell you, that your depression is a curable, treatable mental... Or a treatable mental illness. No, it's genetic. I think it's genetic. That's not factually true. It's not genetic. Sorry, Dr Goldsmith. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that feel like a... a there are genetic kind of factors in terms of, of your state of mind. Everything else oh, is absolutely. genetic. Oh, absolutely. No, of course there is. People's brain yeah. chemistry can predispose them towards yeah. one thing or another. But does that so not seem... So you agree seem, with me then, Stuart? No, I don't, because I, I think <laughs> that seems... I think that seems unnecessarily fatalistic to think to yourself, I can no, never be cured. No, you accept it. You accept it. I'm not saying you accept it. And the reason why my comedy has changed is I have accepted my view on life, which is a slightly negative view on life. Okay. And I use that in terms of my comedy. So, no, it's not. I think it's a positive thing. If I can get through the periods where I feel really bad about myself, then creatively, it's undoubtedly the best thing in the world. I feel sorry for people who don't have depression. <laughs> Because it's magic. You come up with things people would not think about. You know, if you look at a news story and everyone's like, oh, it's a bit bad, and you're like, oh, my God, the world's going to end. And you can creatively use that, then that's sure. the best thing. 
Right. People who aren't depressed are people who end up on crappy shows with no creativity because they don't, they don't have the highs and lows of What life. sort of shows do you mean, crappy shows? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, what... Can you? I'm not trying to again. I'm not trying to get you to incriminate yourself, but I, I don't quite. I don't quite understand what you mean. What what sort? What genre of shows well, do you mean? Do you mean uh, TV shows? If you're shows? somebody who sits on a show and someone gives you a, a, a script and you never creatively input into it, you know, so if you're okay. like kind of a like a someone model, who has the appearance of yeah, appearance of being an artist kind of without there, being one. Yeah, who isn't one who actually gets involved in the stuff themselves. Sure. Do you consider yourself an artist more than an entertainer? No. I do. I do. I consider myself a, a a writer first of all, hopefully, and I an artist is a big word to me. An artist is somebody who's earned their place that people can look up to. So, an artist for me is someone like Joe Brand or Victoria Wood, who has a consistently over twenty five to thirty years produced excellent work. She's an artist. I'm someone who's struggling to reach uh, a level whereby I can. Pay the mortgage. <laughs> you okay. know, I, I think that's a big word. I think it's the same as in Edinburgh when you have big posters. It used to be you got big posters when you'd earned a big poster. And I think now everyone's so clamouring to say I'm the best thing since sliced bread that maybe they're not. Okay, okay. I'm not naming any names either, Stuart. No, 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 me. I will not. I'm absolutely not. I'm absolutely it's gonna not. It's going to be released as that. a sound bite. You're going to mash this all together, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> yeah. So what makes you angry in comedy because you're someone you're someone that seems I think you channel like you're saying you channel your depression into creativity I think I see you so I don't mean this to sound negative but I think you've got a lot of anger I think is that fair <laughs> yeah <laughs> is that a, just a, a pace back for a run up yeah. Uh, um, yeah so we're talking about you channeling your negative emotions and making something positive out of them. And I think one of the, one of the ways that audiences react to you very positively is you are obviously, I mean, in several of your reviews, it says something like you combine Scottish or Glaswegian grit with a sparkly eyed sort of thing. Yeah, well, you know, I think yeah. that's valid. I think yeah. a lot of people, I think yeah. that's fairly true. You, you are angry and yet warm in a way that's very attractive to audiences. <laughs> is that how you feel you come across? Do you, do you think that? Well... I'm very, I'm, one of the things I do hold back on is how outspoken I am. I am actually much more angry than anyone will ever appreciate on stage because I do feel like I have to hold that back. Sure. Because I feel like if I express my true opinions on things, then I'm going to upset quite a lot of people. And I don't like upsetting people at all. That's the worst thing because then that feeds my paranoia. Okay. So if I'm safe, it's purely a self-protection <laughs> A lot mechanism. of these people are visualising a flowchart at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> For my own self-protection in terms of my mental... I have to be very careful that I don't upset people because then I think, God, I've upset people and then it becomes awful. I, I'm angry about a lot of things and I, I am becoming more free with my anger on stage. I, I am becoming, you know, because I think I know how to do it with a bit of a smile. <laughs> they don't think, oh, she's going to stab someone. No, <laughs> maybe. Um, in comedy, things that make me angry just now, just uh, uh, it's not like I've got a list. Number one, uh, <laughs> the references to gender in reviews. Okay. The fact that I'm a female comedian. Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. In reviews, number two, reviews of female comedians that list what other female comedians do and suggest whether or not they do it. There's one outside for a female comedian. Uh, that says, at last, a female comedian that's not bullshit, doesn't wear slippers and talk about cats. Do you know mm. what? Piss off. Mm-hmm. 
Do you do that for boys? Do you do that? Do you sit and look at just as I'm not saying it's you know? I, do you look at Russell Kane and Russell Howard and say you know compare the two of them? You don't do that. You I, only do it to us. I would suggest that some people do do that. I think there's a vote in reviews. For, yeah, I think there's a vogue for what Tony Law calls young men in t-shirts noticing things. I think it's easy to no, write in reviews. Off. I'm talking about reviews. I'm talking about reviewers actively in journalism. For example, uh, there was a review I saw of a woman who did material about divorce. And in the review it said she does material about divorce, but Sarah Millican's already doing that. <laughs> okay. Because we couldn't both, they couldn't both sure, do it. Okay, not me, I'm okay. not divorced. Um, you know, and it's the fact that they compare us and they call us, any, anyone that talks about female comedians as a group is, should be uh, shot. Because we're not all the same. Sarah Millican's very different. Mary Burke tells jokes. Uh, Beck Hill, who's seen here before, does kind of slightly surreal stuff. We're all different, yet we're all lumped together. And whilst I, I don't like talking about it because then you get accused of being whiny, uh, it is really annoying. It's really bloody annoying to consistently be defined by my gender. It's like when they say, here's a female comedian. It's like saying, oh, here's baked beans for dinner. Sorry, their own brand. It's like preparing the audience for us to be not as good as the other comedian that was on before. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Is that so, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I agree. I absolutely agree with you. My, my point was not that I disagree with that. Yeah. I think that there's also, I think people are uh, stereotyped and grouped together by all sorts of, of things. Of course But I'm are. not about to start of banging the drum for, when will people respect middle class white men in their 30s? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to call but, my 2010 fringe show, I'm a white middle class male, lick me. <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to be by management at the time because I was going to call it that. And then just have a photo of me, you know, in suits, like they're always in suits going like that. I, think, I wasn't allowed uh, to. I, I think a, 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 a white middle class male comedian such as myself could justifiably say that you'd need to call it, I'm a white male middle class comedian lick me after you've licked the other 2,000 people exactly like me yeah. that I'm struggling to get noticed. Oh, oh my gosh. You know oh, no, oh, really? Are we going to have the smackdown of who has the more difficult time? No, I, I'm, like I say, I'm not disagreeing with yeah. your one. I'm just saying that a lot of people have a lot of yes. difficulties to get spotted because in, in TV, for example, there are a limited number of, or it feels to yes. a, a lot of comedians, like there's a limited number of places available at the table. Yes, but when you have, look at this. Uh, <laughs> When you have, for example, on a show, a panel show of six people, none mm -hmm. of which are women. Sure. You, just by playing the odds, you have to say yep. the odds are stacked against someone, you know, getting on sure. the show. Absolutely. You know, and I've had conversations with TV producers who say, yeah, we'd really love a woman on. That's that voice again. Really <laughs> love a woman. It's just there aren't really any out there. And you want sure. to... And it's the same, I, I totally agree with that, and it's the same argument as when uh, women are, you only get one woman on a bill at a club. Yes. In case the, pr the promoter sort of thinks, oh, the audience will start thinking it's some special girl night Imagine. if we have a, a female MC and a female act. Imagine spending your day in a workplace with several women and then going for a night out and women spoiling it by speaking. <laughs> imagine, imagine that. Imagine the hell of two women on the bill. Sure. Oh, it's apocalyptic to me. And if and you'll be and you can play a game whereby you spot if there are two women on a bill, you can be pretty certain if one is the compare that the the other woman is in the middle. Yeah. So that you spot. don't have a woman opening the show and introducing a woman because that would be oh, fucked up. My God. I mean, really, what would comedy do in that situation? Unless it's a lady night. 
Sure. Here's the lady night where yeah. the ladies are in a safe space. You, you entered the. You did you win Funny Women? No, or you I didn't. Became win funny a finalist women. in Funny Women. Wasn't even placed. But you did. You entered the. I'm you en- fine with it. It's that, not like I've remembered. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you entered a, a women-specific yeah. competition. Yeah. I was told that that was the best thing to do at the time. When I started out, there was BBC New Comedy Awards, Funny Women, and So You Think You're Funny. Yeah. With the three award, and to be fair to funny women at that point, whilst I disagree with some of the stuff, the finals were in the comedy store in London, and the idea of playing the comedy store in London mm-hmm. was a pretty big deal because that was the big place, you know, God, the comedy store in London, and so that's why sure. I did it. Yeah, but okay. didn't get placed. Totally I wanted. Fine. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to talk about your show last year. Yeah. Which again, I haven't seen. I've read something about. Yeah. And there was. Uh, I read your blog uh, regarding the very emotive bit at the end of that show yes. and people's accusations that doing what you did was emotionally manipulative. Yes. I think in the context of... Can you just explain what that was? For yes, people that haven't basically, seen it? did the show about equal marriage, uh, about the fact I'd got civil partnered, but I wanted to get married to uh, my wife. She's not my wife, call her my wife. And I told stories uh, about the civil partnership in that we couldn't uh, use the word marriage. I couldn't come down the aisle to the proclaimers, let's get married. I couldn't have a Pam Ayer's poem, I'll marry you, but I could come down the aisle to Darth Vader's death march. <laughs> and did you do that? No, we didn't. Okay. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, <laughs> and anyway, and at the end of it, basically, I said, uh, basically, it's up to the audience to make a difference because they could uh, ask their local MPs and MSPs, they could write to them, they could say, this is something I don't care about in a good way, please just pass the bill. Now, uh, I, I got upset every single night. I get upset thinking about it now because I grew up uh, under Section 28, Clause 28. Uh, I, I've been spat at in the street. I've been in a few tussles with people because of being gay and uh, it's something that I just wanted so it was genuine Mm -hmm. and the accusation that it wasn't was the most upsetting part Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't make that up Mm -hmm. do you feel that hug me Stuart I will hug you (laughs) hey man I appreciate that thank you for talking about it do you feel, what, on what basis do you think that accusation was made? Because there's a formula for fringe shows that some people think people follow, which is you come out, you do a happy opening, you've got a wee story, then there's a wee dip, and then you get up and then you go, and my dad died. Mm. And people leave crying. And they think that that's... Now, I've never done that before, and I won't ever do that again. That was a particular show, which meant a huge amount to me personally, and I spent two years writing that show. Mm. Actually, I spent 38 years writing that damn show. Sure. Um, but it meant a lot and the reason I did it was because it was important at that time before the bill went through I thought this is the show that I have to do to set out my stall and say this is what I am and this is what I believe in and it made a difference to audiences there were people coming up to me afterwards who had changed their minds because they'd never realised what a big issue it was to say to another human being you can marry somebody Mm. you know and it was hugely important and every night was important that I got that across to people Given, given, your, um, in, given your focus on it has to be funny and not a lecture, yeah. and the fact that you made that decision to do that because it was important, 
do you think with regard to the stuff we were saying earlier about your show about your depression so yeah. is there I mean it sounds like there is a time when the audience's discomfort takes second place to what you want to say if there's something that's hugely important so for example the equal marriage show at the end of it I wasn't that concerned what people were thinking because I wanted to say at the end of that this is what I believe in and what I decided I took the year off 2011 disaster show 2010 mm-hmm. I'll remember that and I thought, if I go down uh, 2012, if this show's a disaster, I want to go down in a blaze of glory with a show I, uh, I believe in. If this show's going to get hammered by the critics, at least I can face myself in the mirror. 2010, I couldn't face myself. Whereas this show, it was a case of, get it up, yeah? This is a, this is a show I believe in. Yeah. And that's why I decided to do it and just go for it, because I believed in that show, absolutely. Did that show help? Did it help you? Did it help? Make, did it make you happier? Did expressing yourself in yes. that way? I'd never talked to everyone. knew I was a, I was that lesbian off the news quiz that wasn't Sandy Talks fig. <laughs> That's too long to fit on yeah. a web address, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Perkins Talks fig and me and Rona Cameron were the only ones here, and uh, I wanted to put my stamp on it in terms of being a younger, younger gay woman uh, who wasn't afraid to explicitly say this is. This is who I am and this is what I believe in. So it was hugely important. It's undoubtedly taking that year off and spending two years writing the show, which is what I'm doing this year, so I'm two years to write next year's show. Mm. I think it's really difficult in a year to come up with a full show to perform. It's really difficult year after year after year after year to come up with consistently good shows, I think, because I need to have something to say to people for me to enjoy it now, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I'd like to. We've got about ten or fifteen minutes left. Um, if that's all right with you, sorry Susan, if I've I'd upset like everybody. <laughs> I don't think there's a single person here you've upset. Um, we'll be carrying you shoulder high out of the room, or at the very least, crowd surfing you at the end. Um, that there's sounded no, passive on your yeah, part. I can only apologise for that. There's no insurance for that. It will be. Uh, it and will there's, be gr- <laughs> there's grabby lesbians in. I've seen them. I've seen them. <laughs> Um, I'd like to give, if it's all right with you, I'd like to open the floor if anyone would like to ask a question all of right. you. Is that all right? Yep. Okay. Um, what normally happens at this point when I ask for questions is a slightly eggy pause while the audience go, oh, we get to ask questions. So while you think of one, I'll ask another one. Okay. And that's all right. Um, I saw Stephen K. Amos's show in uh, Adelaide this year, a warm-up show he was doing for a show called The Spokesman, in which he talked about, it's quite an interesting idea for his show, he talked about how since coming out of the closet as gay, is he gay? He, yeah, he, it was quite... It, it's the, not really surprising. On, I, think, I think the door on that particular closet was fairly ajar to begin with. I'm gay, Billy Stephen. Yeah, really, you and Michael Stipe, who knew? Yeah. Um, but, um, but he talked about, the, or part of the thrust of that show was that he felt he was under pressure to become a spokesperson for gay mm. people. Mm-hmm. Do you feel any pressure along those lines? I, I'm well, yeah, kind kind of, kind of, uh, but that's okay because uh, I get a lot of young gay people coming to my shows, and you can tell it's the first time they've ever come out as a couple. I get a lot of young lesbians coming along to the shows, and I can see them hiding in the corner, and because it, it's seen as a safe place if they don't want to go to. Gay culture is very very focused on clubs and bars. And that's not necessarily the best place. And so if they want to come and see the shows, then that's fine. And I think what I never want is, uh, when I was young, there was no internet. Uh, You couldn't go online and see that it was normal. And so if someone sees me on QI, or have I got news for you, and starts a discussion, I think, do you know what? This is actually a lifestyle that is going to be okay. Then great. 
Absolutely, mm. because when I was growing up, that's what Sandy Toxvig and Sue Perkins did for me. Because I remember seeing Sandy Toxvig on number 73 in her dungarees and going, aye, aye. <laughs> aye, aye, I think I, I recognise something about that lady. <laughs> and uh, so they did that for me. So if I can do that for somebody else, then absolutely crack on. I think it's a brilliant thing. I'm going to let them down. There's no question. <laughs> it's like I'm on Children's BBC. And children recognised me quite a lot. And last year, I was quite drunk, Stuart, I'll be honest with you. Smoking a, <laughs> smoking a fag out there in Bristol Square. And I walked around with a pint and a fag. And these two young girls went, Miss Adventure! And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to have a picture with your lad, Susan? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Come on, kids! Be like Auntie Susan! <laughs> So I will disappoint people, but as long as people are okay with me disappointing them, then I'll, I'll do it. Okay. Yeah. okay. See, I'm, I'm such a depressive. I'm predicting the fact I'm going well, to fail you are, and at you, being a role model. You, that's why I mentioned that earlier yeah. on about, about seeing it as treatable, seeing it as something you can escape from, because it does seem in the way you talk about things, you do, there does seem to be a sort of a, a, a kind of pessimism. Of course. It's always going to go wrong. Everything's going to go wrong. But it hasn't... It, I mean, from the, from the outside, yeah. it doesn't look like it's going wrong. But I'm ready for it to go wrong. <laughs> I'm always ready for it to go wrong. Every single second of the day, I'm, I'm prepared. In my head, I have failed everything. And then it's not a disappointment when it happens. That's what I so do, I'm and I hate it. And it's negative. a cage of our own yeah, making yeah, that we don't yeah. need to be trapped in. Um, the, every minute of the day, and it's something my wife says to me, I am never... And someone said it to her, that the one thing they wished I could do was enjoy what's happening just now. You know, so enjoy going, yeah, yeah it's all right, actually. But instead I'm going, well, be over soon. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm thinking all the time. Nah, no one will like it. May as well just give up, eh? That's in my head the whole time. And then I go on stage and go... <laughs> and it's really weird. It's really weird. And it's slightly schizophrenic. But it's okay. And then you just have periods of extremely heavy drinking and shouting. In my own house, so no one sees it. That's heavy drinking and heavy shouting. Heavy shouting. Yeah. <laughs> and the cats just sit and look at me. Um, do we have any questions Anyone from the audience? This uh, lady over there, yep. Do you use comedy as a way to both comfort yourself and to connect with people? Yes. Uh, I, love, uh, I love talking to people. I always like talking to people. And I love it when you get a connection. I genuinely love it. And that's why in my show this year, I said to people, people often tweet that they've seen me in the street. And I was like, please don't do that. Just come up and say hello. Because that's what it is. It's not about saying, oh, I saw Susan Kalman. Just say hello. Just come up and say hello. That's why I do this job is to actually... Uh, make people feel better when they leave than they did when they come in. That's ultimately, I think, a comedian's job. If we get a message across cracking, but ultimately we're there to make you feel better than you did when you came in, not worse. Certainly not worse. That's the worst case scenario, <laughs> if people feel worse. So yes, and it is a comfort to me. I feel if I don't gig for a while, I get very kind of antsy because then I don't get to do that. So undoubtedly it's a comfort to me without question. If I wasn't doing this, I think I'd be dead. I would have probably had some form of nervous breakdown as a lawyer. And yeah, so it saved me. Comedy saved me, and I say that in the show. Comedy saved my life, I suspect, because it gave me an outlet to the things that are in my head that sound weird if you say them to a friend, but on stage everyone goes, oh, it's funny. 
Can, can I ask you, just talking about comedy and what you do with it, and I, I think you're very successful at it. I'm sure you have to accept on some level that what you do is effective, it's working. Yeah, maybe. You have to accept it. Yeah. So I'm going to go wrong, Stuart. But are there... See, I think, in, I think if people say it's good, then it'll go wrong. I, I believe know, I in... Know. I think fate then goes, oh, if you start getting... That's why I know, and it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> do that. It if doesn't start, do that. If you start going, yeah, I'm doing brilliantly, God will go, ah! <laughs> Don't even believe in God, Stuart. I don't, man. I know. <laughs> I know. I don't exactly. I, I know totally, exactly. If you, you get, and do you know it's ingrained from my Scottish childhood, where the worst thing was arrogance. Never be arrogant. I was always taught that. And if you start getting kind of mm, look at me, then something will happen to bring you down because you're not allowed to be positive about yourself. <laughs> Scottish people should not be positive. <laughs> I, first time I did Have I Got News P- for People you? wanted to cheer that, but it was yeah, too yeah. weirdly paradoxical. <laughs> uh, I did my first Have I Got News for you. I went into my local pub. The old men that are in the pub, it's proper old pub, proper old man's pub, proper pub. The wee old man came up to me and went, oh, I saw you on the television. I was like, what do you think? And he said, you weren't that shite. Now that, <laughs> that is what Scottish people say. You weren't as shite as we thought you were going to be. To me, that's a five-star review. <laughs> Are there, are there are there elements of stand-up comedy that you feel that you would want to add to your abilities? Are there things you see other people doing that you go, I wish I wish I was a bit better at doing that? Well, I like tried to. I tried to well, I, uh, well, listen, Gary Delaney's a master of jokes. If I had his ability to write a joke the way Gary Delaney writes a joke, everything would be absolutely cracking. But I don't. But I'd love to be able to do... Gary Delaney stands there, killer line, killer line, killer line, killer... Mm. I mean, he's astonishing. Mm. I would love to be able to tell jokes <laughs> instead of just kind of meandering stories that occasionally go... Uh, I, I started playing the guitar. Uh, <laughs> Les, sorry, can we just get the audience to strike from the record all of the really funny jokes that yes, Stephen yes. has already said? Because obviously uh, they don't count for some reason. Yeah, After watching Pippa Evans, yeah. I want to... Uh, I, I play the guitar and then I watch Pippa Evans and thought I may as well just throw it out the window. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So I think I'm stuck with just kind of doing what I do, to be honest. Though I admire other comics immensely. Uh, people like Gary Delaney, I think, are extraordinary in terms of joke telling and writing. They really are. For the sake of the recording, I'm going to try and condense that. This is issues... issues. No, that's okay. It's a great question. Uh, issues about your Scottishness, whether you get labelled as a Scot, whether you, have to, you feel that you have to try and move beyond that yeah. label. Uh, yes, labelled as a Scot, sometimes a benefit because there are regional boxes that need to be ticked. Let's be cynical about this matter. The people do need to have, you know, so sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Kevin Bridges, very rarely is it Frankie Boyle anymore because he, he's banned from everywhere. So, uh, yes, you have to embrace it. I think one thing is not to get a chip on your shoulder about it and to be clever about writing the material that says, I am Scottish, I understand the stereotype. It's exactly the same as the lesbian thing. Because the lesbian, you have to deal with it and you have to say, yes, I am. You may have a stereotype. Stereotypes are true, but this is what I am. And I think the benefit is, I am Scottish, I'm unashamedly and very proud of being Scottish, but I also like to say, and I have a law degree, and I'm in a relationship, and I occasionally eat fruit, and I'm okay. (laughs) You know, so you you have to, you've got to work with, I always think you've got to work with what you're given. I'm a short woman. You put me next to a tall man, it's funny. Just go over it, Susan. They're going to do it. So I think you have to not, uh, never apologise for it, but think of your own take on what it is so that you're not labelled 
as you know Scottish whatever it is that's what the Scottish are like Kevin Bridges is brilliant he's very intelligent actually uh, Kevin and some of his stuff is right on the money about being Scottish and what he is and someone like Kevin is a great example of someone who embraces it but writes really clever stuff about it as well um, I was going to ask, just you mentioning stereotypes there, and we'll need to wrap up fairly soon, but do you find that you need to be very particular? Do you find you need to tread carefully in your use of stereotypes of, say, gay people? When in your Radio 4 series you made a joke about um, uh, lesbians, or you, you've got a line about wearing a tool belt. Yeah. There's, there's a line about, um, oh, you know, lesbians are just like you, except we spend every weekend in Ikea and yeah. we, we recycle a lot. Yeah. And again, I think those are very funny lines, but yeah. there's sort of a tension of, oh, is that okay, okay to laugh at? Two things, What's Stuart. The- Stereotypes are based on fact, right? Lesbians do recycle. We do have cats. <laughs> there was a programme called Lip Service on BBC Three, which was a lesbian drama about lesbians, and they didn't recycle once or have any cats. It was the most... <laughs> Stereotypes are there for a reason, mate. And sometimes when I tell those jokes, I'm laughing myself at the people who laugh because it's a stereotype. Sure. And I think it's cool to go on stage and go, this is what you think about us, no bother at all. Because the problem is it's bloody true. <laughs> what, my audiences are sometimes 70% lesbian. Do you know how many check shirts and comfortable shoes there are in that room? <laughs> it's true, it's bloody true. Rohan trousers, climbing gear, it's all there. <laughs> Bags for life upon bags for life. I'm, I'm slightly unnerved in that you've completely described my wardrobe. <laughs> so I just think, look, you've just got to go for it. And I think to be, ex- my main aim is, yes, I am Scottish. Yes, I'm a lesbian. Yes, I'm depressive. But the thing is, is to try and get into the mainstream so that all of these things become more acceptable than they are at this precise moment in time. So everything I'm trying to do is to kind of make sure that I am comfortable for people so that when I... I, There's a lot of gay men on television and not a lot of lesbians. And I would really love to start getting onto some of the more mainstream shows just so that that I'm there, just so there's somebody there of a slightly different viewpoint than the much maligned white middle-class males. (laughs) Oh, I feel sorry for you now, sweetie. I'm sorry. (laughs) I feel bad that you, you think you're having a problem. She wants to pretend to be a lesbian. It really works. I, I have to say, on every occasion when I've pretended to be a lesbian, it's been pretty exciting. <laughs> um, foul! Foul! Ladies and gentlemen... You're using my sexuality for a cheap laugh, Stuart! Didn't, it didn't feel cheap at the time. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we've got time for. Please join me in thanking the wonderful Susan Cowman. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So that was Susan Kalman. Just absolutely loved it. She drives me mad, though. It's so hard to hear someone being so negative about themselves when you're on the outside and you can't see why they would possibly treat themselves like that. Anyway, brilliant comedian, loads of insight. I I honestly think that is one of my favourite interviews I've ever done. I was absolutely uh, off my tits with excitement for the rest of the day after we recorded that one. Um, so thank you very much to Susan and thanks to her especially for being so open. Um, you can go to audible.co.uk backslash cc for Comedians Comedian and sign up for a free audiobook. You sign up for their free, you know how this works, you sign up for their free trial. Um, not not for their free trial, you sign up for their trial which I think costs you money but in doing so you get a free starter audiobook and you can listen between you and me. You can just cancel straight away anyway, and they must know that. So presumably they're just factored in 
thinking that you are uh, going to do, going to plan to cancel it, but actually go, oh, well, my stuff's so good uh, that you're going to keep going. That's their business. But if you go via audible.co.uk backslash CC uh, and then they give me a little a little something, I'm going to say kickback because I've nicked that phrase from uh, uh, American podcaster Dan Carlin of Hardcore History. Um they give me something. That's another way you can support the show. And you can buy on Audible the entire series of Susan Kalman is Convicted, which we discussed in this show. So if you want to hear those, that's your best bet. You'll be helping Susan out, I'm sure. You'll definitely be helping me out if you go via that web address. That's all the stuff for now. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing this episode for me. Thanks to Dan Melrose for the music, as well as Toby Rose and Graham Crockford for technical support of various kinds. Uh, and of course, to James and Ant from So Television, who produced the Edinburgh Run. That's all for now. We're back next week with, who have we got? Oh my God, next week it's Bo Burnham. So thank you very much for listening. And just as a final thing, just want to remember, um, I produced these little um, uh, YouTube videos, uh, little highlight reels of the show, if you'd like to see them, uh, basically as a means of driving people from YouTube towards the podcast. If you're Googling a comic on YouTube uh, and you might discover that, and uh, then you might discover the podcast. That's the plan. So if you like the show, if you like the clip, then do share it around the place. I think it's small enough you could stick it on people's Facebook walls without pissing them off too much. Maybe. Let's find out. Thank you very much. Speak to you next time with Bo Burnham. In a week. A bloody week. We're sticking to it. Bye-bye. (laughs) 